0: Welcome to the Redemption Tempe podcast, where we believe that all of life is off for Jesus. I am AC. I am here today with Greg Lindsay. What's up, AC? And the awesome Josh Butler. Yo. And so today we're looking at a very uh, uh, central passage to the Old Testament narratives. Controversial. Uh, it can be, but we're no strangers to controversy. We'll go wherever the Bible leads us. And today it leads us into Exodus chapters 5 through 7, verse, verse 13. In this, we see where God uh, has a showdown with Pharaoh and Pharaoh's heart gets hardened. And of course, this opens up a whole host of questions. Uh, Is God doing it? Is Pharaoh doing it? Why is this happening? What does this mean for today? And we're going to jump into those things. But before we do, Greg, can you give us kind of a play-by-play, a quick synopsis of the text itself?
1: Yeah, and and I think it's significant as we lead up to sort of our bigger question uh, that we're going to ask you about, Josh. There's a couple of other little things that I imagine come up. Uh, or could come up for people as they're reading through this passage that uh, that we can kind of touch on first. So essentially you're seeing stuff going down here. It's getting crazier and crazier uh, as Moses is following God's call to him uh, and with Aaron and they are confronting Pharaoh and things are getting worse for the Israelites. So Pharaoh uh, essentially takes away the straw uh, that he was providing for the Israelites in making the bricks and so then now they not only have to make the bricks, but they have to find the straw. So it's like way harder for them to do their job. And they're getting a lot harsher treatment because of that. And the people are starting to grumble towards Moses. Like, why are you making our lives worse? With I thought, I thought you said God was going to deliver us. And so Moses... Um, you see here at the end of chapter 5, goes back to God and says, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So I think on a cursory glance, you could see this is like accusatory towards um, God, which I think that there are elements of that. But you also see Moses' insecurities coming out here too. He's he's feeling the weight of the people's anger towards him. And, uh, and then in chapter 6, we see God's patient, but firm response to, to Moses, which is something that I really appreciate, um, especially here early on in the Bible, throughout Exodus, things like that, where the Lord is reassuring Moses um, and he is reminding him of his call. And, and then he restates like, I need you to go back to Pharaoh and I need you to tell him to let my people go, uh, and then in the middle there, this will be a quick question that we'll we'll sidetrack here in just a second, but we have a genealogy of Moses and Aaron, uh, and then we end in uh, the beginning of chapter seven, where Moses and Aaron follow what God told them to do. They go back to Pharaoh, and we see some stuff going on with a staff turning into a snake um and then that's where uh where we'll spend the bulk of our time today pharaoh's heart was hardened it says and he would not listen to them as the lord had said so i definitely want to get into unpacking that with you josh but um a couple more minor questions as we're working our way there first of all uh i mentioned so moses questions god um after pharaoh makes more strict punishment for the israelites he says why did you send me at all god reminds him uh comforts him and then reaffirms the call that he has um, doing for Moses. And then we seem, seemingly abruptly have a genealogy here of Moses and Aaron. What is that about? What do we do with that? Why is that there?
2: Yeah, the genealogy can seem, you know, kind of like out of place, like, whoa, we've got the storyline going, then boom, there's this list of all all these people's kids, right? Uh, But it's actually significant in the big picture. Uh, There's an emphasis here on uh, the house of Levi, the sons of Levi, and where are the stories going, what's, what's going to be coming up here soon is the establishment of the priesthood. And it's the tribe of Levi, so you got 12 tribes of Israel, the tribe of Levi, the Levites are the priesthood, they are the ones who are going to mediate God's presence to his people and his People are going to mediate God's presence to the world. And earlier in Exodus, we actually read that Moses himself is from the tribe of Levi. And that's significant because it's setting up Moses as a priest king, like a priestly figure. He's described as a king, kind of a ruler for Israel, uh, but also as a priest, a priestly figure who mediates the presence of God. And for uh, Israel and in the the Old Testament, there's actually the significance, like the high priest, was supposed to be like the second Adam, like this new Adam figure who is gonna play this like redemptive role. And in this genealogy, one of the things that you it's doing, if you know where the storyline is going, uh, you start to read that you, you're getting the setup for who the new high priests are gonna be after this. And it's something that's interesting is virtually all of them fail and like fail horribly. So you've got Moses and Aaron, and you know that Aaron's gonna fail with the golden calf incident later in Exodus. And then you see down in verse um uh, 23 uh, that Aaron has his kid. And Nadab and Abihu, and they fail with uh, burning strange fire to the Lord. This is the story that comes up later. And uh, the sons of Korah come next, and they fail. There's like Korah's rebellion uh, that occurs later in the, the Pentateuch. And then Eleazar, um, he has a son, Phinehas. And Phineas is actually the one kind of bright spot. Later, there's a story where Phineas, uh, filled with zeal for the Lord, kind of defends the integrity of God's people in the story. And it's seen as kind of this upright action on behalf of God. And so it's kind of this glimmer of hope. We actually don't know much about Phineas. And and I think there's a setup of like, it's setting up the priesthood, uh, Moses, and Moses is going to be great, but even he can't enter the promised land because he messes up. Aaron and the whole succession of high priests, if you know where the story's going, you know, they're going to fail miserably. And there's kind of this glimmer that maybe one like Phineas down the road will be a high priest. I think it's a foreshadowing ultimately of our hope in Jesus. Jesus comes as the ultimate high priest who doesn't fail, who's filled with the right zeal for the Lord and, and mediates the presence of God accurately to us as his people in the world. Yeah. So I think the genealogy here is, it's in essence, it's setting up the priesthood and the high priest, the line to which are going to come. And it's interesting that it occurs right after God reaffirms his call right. to Moses, yeah, the high priest.
1: Yeah. And he even reaffirms the promises to the Israelites there, too, and talking about bringing them to the land that he promised for Abraham. So that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense that that section would be there. And it would make a lot of sense to Israelites at that time reading this um, as a continuation of the promise. So that's super helpful. Other quicker, minor question right before the hardening of Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's heart here at the, uh, end of the passage. So it's uh chapter seven, verse 11. It says, then, um, Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts. So Moses has just thrown his staff down as God called him to do. And it turned to a snake. He picks it up. And then Pharaoh basically is like, well, to his magicians, like, can you guys do that? And then they do it. And it says by their secret arts. So something I always want to be sensitive to, especially in New Testament stuff, I think it even for Christians, I, I think when I've had conversations with people, they'll I've had conversations where people have said, like, well, sure, God can do miraculous things because he's God, but when when you get to some of these things of people basically doing magic or secret arts. How do we take that as Christians today with our contemporary lens? Did this really happen? What, what's going on there?
2: Great. Yeah, two thoughts. First, uh, in the story of Exodus, I think it's interesting to see even literally what I think is happening here. Uh, you have this progression as the plagues are going to start happening with Egypt and all, and there's this intensification as the plagues develop. And so um, in the first few ones, uh, like this scene here, the it, the confrontation, so to speak, the emphasis is on Aaron and the magicians, right? So Pharaoh's court magicians or whatever, and Aaron. Um, so Aaron's kind of a step down from Moses, so to speak, the high priest, and the magicians are a step down from Pharaoh. And the first few plagues, the magicians are able to emulate, right? But after that, the, the plagues have these three cycles. So the first cycle, the magicians are able to emulate until the final one of that cycle. And then you move in the second cycle of three plagues. Um, you have uh, now it's between Moses and Pharaoh. And so it's kind of like the game goes up a notch and now the magicians are no longer able to emulate it. And then when that still isn't happening, then it goes up to God and Pharaoh is the emphasis, like God versus Pharaoh at the, at the climax of it. And there uh, the magicians are not able to emulate. In fact, the magicians are themselves afflicted by the, in a personal way some of the plagues that are happening. And so I think one of the themes that's being set up is almost this intensification you know, of the plagues as they come. But the second thought is that uh, yeah, there is dark. Uh, there is a dark spiritual reality to our world. Like our rebellion has unleashed the power of the serpent, of the enemy of God, like the the evil one. Uh, his work has been unleashed in the world through our wickedness, right? And and I think that too often in our day to day, we have a fairly materialistic worldview that just says, "Hey, matter, earth, concrete substances, like that's all there is," and the biblical worldview, I think, is that, no, there is heaven and earth. There's a spiritual reality and a physical reality that are intertwined. They're almost like t- two threads, that, two types of fre- thread that are interwoven in the fabric of creation. And so there's a spiritual fabric and reality to our world. And we rightly pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, we want to see that fabric restored. Um, but on the flip side of that, there's... uh the dark spiritual forces as well you know like right now there are uh forces that want to tear at the fabric of creation and so there's a i think a reality that most people historically around the world um would understand at one level or another too that like there there are dark spiritual forces that we should be wary of now what those are, how we engage them, spiritual warfare, those kind of things. That's, that's a much bigger conversation But it's, it is worth recognizing here that, um, it's, it's real. Like mm-hmm. Paul would say, like, you know, our power is not just against flesh. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and powers, uh, the kind of ruler of this world, meaning, you know, kind of Satan and the, the, our ultimate challenge is not so much with people, so much as the, um, evil one, the, the ultimate rebel against God who yeah. wants to, Turn our world away from God and distance us from Him.
1: It's good. It's, it's pretty.
0: He- it's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy, and not to like pile it on, but then we also have to deal with our own hearts mm-hmm. too, right? And yeah. that's where we head to with the rest of this uh, this episode and talk about uh, this whole concept of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. You know, and you can read that and see sometimes Pharaoh hardens his heart. Sometimes it just says it's hard, hardened. And then but at the beginning, God said when he's laying out his plan, he's like, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And it says in the text that he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Josh, what do we do with that? You know, yeah. is God just walking around hardening people's hearts at random or like what what's going on here?
2: Yeah, no, it's, a, it's an important question. You know, I found uh, this can be a... A, a heartfelt one that many of us can struggle with. Um, Is it unfair that God hardens Pharaoh's heart? It can sound kind of capricious, you know? And so if you are, you know, if, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, then is Pharaoh really responsible, you know? Like, and it could get personal for us. Like, dude, is my brother or my, you know, aunt or people who don't follow Jesus, is that really ultimately God's fault? Because is he hardening them and maybe they want him, but you won't let them follow him, you know, that that kind of thing. And so, uh There can be kind of this caricature out there, again, I think of a capricious God, and people want God, but he just won't let them. And and it's helpful to take a closer look at, I think, what's happening in in the text, right? Um, So a few observations that have been helpful for me on this. Uh, The first one is just to recognize uh, who is Pharaoh. Now, we often think of Pharaoh as just some dude, right? like some guy. King of Egypt. It's it's worth recognizing, like, Pharaoh actually is um, not just one person in Exodus. The same title is used for a succession of kings, right? And so, uh, Pharaoh, you know, Exodus doesn't give us, you know, this was Pharaoh Joe or Pharaoh Bill, or, you know, Pharaoh Ramses or Thutmose or whatever, you know. It doesn't identify him specifically, and I think it's because he want, the Bible wants us to see Pharaoh as, like, a, an archetype, a representative, a picture of of egypt as a whole and a representative for its leadership as a whole the character of uh, egypt as a whole another observation i think is helpful is like you mentioned uh ac is that uh there is sort of a back and forth emphasis here like early on in the narrative the emphasis is heavily on pharaoh hardening his own heart so the first five plagues are either pharaoh hardened his heart or his heart was hardened and the agent is unclear. So was it God hardening him or was Pharaoh hardening A lot of the time it's unclear. It's more just more the path his heart was, or it's stating like his heart was hardened. And then as the per- plagues move forward, uh, especially in the tail half, then we find a stronger emphasis on God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so I don't think we see a picture here where it's like Pharaoh wants God, but God's just like too bad. I'm not going to, you know, like historically kind of theologically be called compatibilism that, uh, there's a compatibility between our rebellion against God and God's sovereign ability to actually um, orchestrate our rebellion into the bigger context of his His purposes and all. But where I, I'd like to focus, one thing that was really helpful for me, I, I was studying this passage years ago um, for a sermon, and I uh, was kind of looking at the, that word hardened. And uh, one of the things that actually struck me was there are three different Hebrew words that are translated into English here as hardened in Exodus. Three different Hebrew words, and each of them show up in other ways in Exodus and the first few books of the Bible. And I think when we see kind of the, the nuance of these words and the stories that they show up in, it helps kind of fill out the picture. It helps it kind of pop, I think, what's, what's happening here. So I want to take a look at each of these three words, if that's cool. All right, so the first word is chazak. Right, And chazak it means to harden or strengthen or seize. Right, And the first place this shows up is in this passage just before in uh, just a little bit earlier when God has Moses take the um, staff. He says, hey, you're going to go before Pharaoh. And uh, he, well, he has Moses take the staff, drop it on the ground. It turns into a snake and it chases Moses. He's running. And then God tells Moses, hey, turn around and grab the snake by the tail which actually takes some faith. You know, like, dude, this thing can kill me, right? So he turns around and he grabs it. And when he grabs the snake by the tail, he seizes it or strengthens his grip around it and it hardens back mm-hmm. into a staff. So it's the first place this word, "shazak." it's the primary word for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And in this storyline, like, I think it's setting up what this hardening actually means. Uh, it's later in the same, same passage that God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And I think the picture what's this going on? Like Moses and the staff and the snake. It's a picture of the showdown that's about to go down. Like God's saying, Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And I'm going to like my outstretched staff, you're going to be like my outstretched staff and you're going to speak and proclaim my message. And Pharaoh is going to turn and chase you, you know, and your Pharaoh's like identified with the serpent here. Like the power of evil is pursuing Moses and God's people. And you guys are going to run. And you think ultimately the red sea, like where the, they're going to cross through the sea. Um, but, Then you're gonna turn around in essence, like I'm you're a representative of me. Like I'm gonna grab hold of Pharaoh, that slippery snake, by the tail, and I'm actually gonna use his rebellion, I'm gonna harden him, I'm gonna seize him, Shazak, I'm gonna strengthen my grip around him, Shazak, I'm gonna harden him from a slippery snake that's trying to destroy my people back into a rod that displays my power and my glory in the earth, the deliverance of my people. So what does that mean? Well, it means that um Pharaoh is a slippery snake and yet he's not going to be able to outwit God or get around God, right? Like that storyline, it doesn't diminish God's sovereignty anywhere. Yes, God's sovereign, but it also fl- frames it in a narrative context, in a story where we see that um God hardening Pharaoh in this picture, it's one of God taking Pharaoh's rebellion and his pursuit of his people and him turning it against Pharaoh himself. And it's it's actually a uh, it's displaying God's might over the mightiest king of the world, the one who's kind of meant used his power to oppress. God's going to use his power instead to deliver. It's also interesting, going back to the thing we mentioned earlier here about dark spiritual forces, spiritual powers, it's interesting to me here that uh, that word for snake, when he drops the staff into a snake, it's associated later in scripture and in Hebrew literature with the sea monster or Leviathan, or like this dragon. image. So it's, not The association is not just like a little garden snake. like It's almost like a, a baby dragon, so to speak, right? And uh, it's also an allusion, I think, here to the serpent in the garden. And it speaks here that Pharaoh's rebellion and Egypt's oppression is animated by the power of the snake, the deceiver, the enemy. Like There's a dark spiritual force at work. that stands against God that is at work through Pharaoh and Egypt. Uh, it's directing Egypt against God's people. Pharaoh has aligned himself with that rebellion. He's hardened himself against God. And yet God's going to take even that and use it to display his power for deliverance and reestablishing his goodness. So now the second word that gets used is kabod. And it's actually the same word uh, at the root of like our concept of glory. And literally kabod means heavy or to, to glorify, to make heavy. And so kabod can mean like, heavy hardened glorify it carries a sense of weight and the first place that this shows up so the last word shizak first place it showed up was exodus 4 the second word kavad the first place it shows up is in the passage exodus 5 and it's when pharaoh takes away the straw and he makes their labor heavy hmm. he basically he he makes their labor kavad burdensome he hardens their labor hmm. like pharaoh Takes away the straw so they can't use it to make bricks, and he hardens their labor. He makes it heavy. And he's doing this ultimately seeking to glorify himself, setting himself up against God and his people. Um, So, the point here, I I think there's a a sense here going on. Like, God, in essence, is going, dude, you made life hard for my people. Now I'm going to make life hard for you. Like, Mm -hmm. you hardened the burden. You used your power, your weight as the king of Egypt to make life hard and burdensome and toilsome for my people um, who are vulnerable before you and you set yourself against them now i'm going to make life hard for you this echoes back kind of god's promise to abraham like those who bless you i'll bless those who curse you i will curse uh, you had at the end of genesis you have the earlier pharaoh who blesses god's people and egypt receives blessing that's part of what builds them as a powerhouse in the world but now you have later these kings this pharaoh who knew not joseph you know who has actually sets himself against and curses god's people a vulnerable immigrant minority population within the kingdom sets himself against them curses them in essence and god's bringing down the curse on egypt pharaoh's made life hard and heavy for god's people now god's going to harden life for pharaoh and this struck me uh when we were in exodus 1 this is kind of a side note, I guess. But Exodus 1, where uh, this is a few sermons back, none of this, but it struck me after. I didn't mention the sermon, but it, it struck me when we were looking at it. Exodus 1, uh, the first, you know, verses 8 to 14, first minute of the passage, who is Pharaoh afflicting? Who is he hurting? Who is he setting himself against? That's uh, the men. And what is he doing to the men? Heavy labor. He's making their labor toilsome, right? In the, the bricks and in the field, It says, that's interesting. Then the second half of the verse, who is it against? Pharaoh's actions against. It's against the women. And what are his actions against? Well, it relates to their children. Childbirth. He's pulling the babies away and killing them. And then eventually have them thrown in the river. And when you see that, what should be echoing in your mind is like, oh my gosh, this is the curse of Genesis 3. Like the curse uh, related to the man uh, in Genesis 3 was going to be toilsome labor. Like instead <laughs> of the, that the the ground instead of just bringing forth its abundance it's going to be toil and labor and by the sweat of your brow and the curse for the woman has to do with pain in conception and pain in childbirth um it has to do with uh the struggle of infertility uh, to struggle to get pregnant and the painfulness of bringing children into the world there's a kind of a parallel there like the fertility of the land and the fertility of the womb like we're made to be abundant and bring life to the world but the, there's going to be a struggle now mm-hmm. in a fallen world as yeah, about that. And then you look at exodus 1 and you realize like Dude, Pharaoh is an agent of the curse. Yeah, Like God is seeking to bring his redemptive blessing into the world in spite of the fall. And Pharaoh has set himself as an agent of the serpent against God's people. And he's making the labor even more toilsome. And he's making the fruit of the womb even more um, desolate. You know, like there's, so there's a context here where Pharaoh has made life hard and heavy for God's people. And so one of the echoes here for God saying, I'm going to harden Pharaoh, I think is this kind of like you hardened life for my folks, and I'm going to harden life for you. Another angle on this second word, but like I said, it's a glory image. Uh, it's the same word for to glorify. And Pharaoh has sought to honor or glorify himself against God, and God's about to return the favor. Right? <laughs> like God uses the same word repeatedly throughout Exodus to say that he will be honored. He will be glorified by, liber- by liberating his people from Pharaoh's heavy, burdensome weight. I so think there's a sense here in God hardening it's like dude you sought to exalt yourself and glorify yourself by pushing my people down now I'm going to push you down to exalt myself you know and i think on a practical note what this means is uh be careful what you ask for right like if you seek to exalt yourself over god and pride you're going to sink beneath the weight when god puts you in your place hmm. um if we seek to Mistreat, you know, if we end up mistreating those that are vulnerable before us, we make like life hard and heavy for them. With whether that's our kids or our employees or the people that are in our kind of sphere of influence, if we make life hard and heavy for them, we should be careful because God can make life hard and heavy for us, right? Okay, so there's one more word, a third one. Third one is kasha, and this word is interesting. It's a birth image. It's associated with birth or labor pains, right? And so it can mean severe fierce or stiffened. And the first place this word, uh, or a main place this word shows up is in Genesis 35. And it's where Rachel, she's having these labor pains that are so severe, so fierce, so hard that she dies giving birth to Benjamin, like the last tribe of Israel. And so it's a labor image that's connected to the birth of God's people. And when we zoom out to the exodus i think we see a similar picture here that egypt is like a pregnant mom who's about to give birth hmm. to god's people right that israel uh has gone like abraham's seed essentially has gone into the womb of egypt right um and it's grown big there there's an emphasis there on they've been fruitful and multiplied like israel is god's firstborn son it's called and now in the womb of egypt israel god's firstborn son has grown and matured and gotten big and is ready to come out. Mm -hmm. And so I think when, you know, God goes to Pharaoh, like God calls Pharaoh to let his people go. Pharaoh, though, as the head of Egypt refuses, like Egypt is essentially refusing to give birth to God's firstborn son.
1: That usually doesn't work out very well. That doesn't work out (laughs) very well, exactly.
2: And so with this, you know, with this kind of picture in mind, dude, Pharaoh's hardening equals a refusal to give birth. And so God, in essence, induces labor, right? Hmm. Like, like the plagues, our God inducing labor on Egypt, inducing these severe, fierce labor pangs, the stiffening of the empire under the weight of God's inducing labor to bring out his people. And it's through this that Israel will eventually be delivered, born uh, from the womb of darkness in Egypt. It's interesting where it kind of ends in darkness. And through the watery canal of the Red Sea as the waters get parted and God's firstborn son is birthed out of the darkness of Egypt's womb, a place of death behind brought through the canal of the kind of waters opened up and out into the wilderness where now God's firstborn son is like depicted like an infant, right? mm-hmm. where completely helpless, utterly dependent needs to be sustained by God in the wilderness, by manna and yeah. water, like by heavenly provision um, can't provide for uh, you know himself. Like Israel needs God to sustain like an infant in the wilderness with this heavenly food and drink uh, until ready to enter the promised land. So what's this mean? Well, I think the picture here is that like Rachel, Egypt is gonna experience a type of death from the severity of her hardened labor pains that will bring forth the tribes of the nation of Israel. And um it is interesting, Ezekiel sixteen as one place that uses similar imagery for the Exodus, uh seeing Israel as a newborn baby abandoned, discarded out of Egypt that is adopted by God and cared for and raised and grown up into maturity with him. But the bigger picture here is God's hardening of Pharaoh as Egypt's representative is What hardens Pharaoh? In some ways, the plagues are what hardens Pharaoh. You know, how does God harden Pharaoh? By the plagues that confront his refusal to let his people go. And as Pharaoh continues to reject, you know, like the plagues get severe and severe, but God will deliver his people into life and freedom with him that becomes interesting you know you jump to the new testament and there's similar language about like all creation now it's interesting paul in romans 5 to 8 uses a lot of exodus imagery he talks about how um, the enslavement of the world and slavery to sin and it's the huge themes of slavery he's using a lot of exodus language and imagery um, but then he talks about our adoption as children of god we cry out abba father and how all creation is groaning as in birth pangs, as in labor pangs, um, and judgment is coming upon the world, like this inducing labor again, and yet um, creation's groaning as in the pangs of labor, like creation is now the pregnant mom under the weight of human rebellion and sin and death, and yet God is going to deliver his children into his presence as he redeems creation and judges evil.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a super interesting way to think about all of this too, that We've kind of had some side conversations, you and I, about this, but I had never thought about even the hardening question about that. And this is not a uh, birth class or an anatomy <laughs> class or anything, but even just in the 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 pangs of birth and mm. things that you know happen through that, there is a lot of uh, similarities there that I think is helpful to turn this conversation around from just focusing on where I think are... I mean, it's out of fear a lot of times and it's not necessarily... Like misplaced fear, but you know, is God making this happen to Pharaoh? But when you get this robust uh, understanding as the Israelites, I mean, I'm sure would have understood all of these things. It's super helpful to kind of expand our understanding of how the nuances of all of this—that it's not just a removal of agency from Pharaoh or not. It's it's way more, uh, and it also helps us. Remember that this is God's story. Um, mm-hmm. It's not about a Pharaoh or, or even Moses. You know, it's it's how God is moving throughout history to enact his uh, his will and his purposes and his desires. Yes,
2: definitely. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't remove. I think there's a beauty here of going, yes, God is sovereign. Like God is sovereignly at work and he can take even Pharaoh's rebellion. Um, and it doesn't catch him off guard. He knows beforehand what's how things are going to go down. You know, guys like, "Oh shoot, Pharaoh's not letting my people go. What am I going to do?" You know, like God is sovereign both in terms of His knowledge of what's going to happen, His sovereignty um, over and through Pharaoh's heart, His rebellion. So it doesn't diminish God's sovereignty in any way. But I do think it helps frame it where we see that, like, "Oh, this isn't Pharaoh wants God, and God just won't let him have it." You know, this is actually pharaoh is fully responsible and as you know bears full responsibility in this he is yeah
0: and and that's just the type of dude pharaoh is right Mm -hmm. like if he ran a dominoes that's the way he would run dominoes but (laughs) but god chose him to not run a dominoes but to run this empire at this (laughs) specific time in history to where it would play out to fulfill god's
2: purposes yes
1: so 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 That is really, really helpful context as we're kind of rounding third and and headed towards home here on this episode. What about, so I think the main question that that we hear people talking about with this sort of thing is, do I have to be worried about God hardening my heart or my friend's heart or my family member's heart? And can I do anything about that? What would be your response based on this context here that we have? What do we do with that in a contemporary setting?
2: Great. I think there is a good note of healthy warning here to go and do don't harden your heart against God because you may hit the point of no return. And, and, you know? and real quick, what, yeah. what does that mean? Like Make that is that that tangible. That's yes. not like I
0: loaded up on Popeye's chicken sandwiches and <laughs> my arteries are closed. You got some? They <laughs> were sold out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so great question. Hardened heart. What does it mean? Uh, the heart is seen as like, in, in Scripture, is like the center of our desire, our affections, what we love, you know? And I think uh, it, it, it confronts the idea that, you know, I think we can often think of ourselves as sort of uh, what, guy James K. Smith calls, like, brains on a stick. You know, Mm. we tend to think of ourselves as just primarily thinking creatures, which is true. I mean, and even in Scripture, the heart can be used with a sense of thoughts and inclinations, all that. Well, thoughts, but the inclinations of the heart, it's also going deeper to, like, dude, what is it we love? What is it we desire? And so, the image of a hardened heart, um, it's the image of our love growing cold for God, becoming numb to His ways and His purposes, and usually... The way that happens, I think, is that we fall more in love with other things than God. We kind of displace God by exalting other things. And usually at the center of it, I would go so far to say, and even like whether you're talking about Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Edward, a lot of folks throughout church tradition would say... At the center, even of that, of displacing, displacing God with other things, is ultimately an enthronement of the self. Right, you know, setting ourselves up over against God. I, there's this quote I really love by um, Tim Keller. Uh, he's talking on, you know, a hard subject, with the topic of hell uh, in his book *Reason for God*. I think is is where I found this originally. But uh, he says, "Hell then is the trajectory of a soul living a self-absorbed, self-centered life, going on and on forever." In short, hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into infinity. And I think that's a good, healthy, kind of sobering question for us today is going to what trajectory am I on? You know, like, because yeah. um, I think it's a dangerous place to go. Some folks would say, well, hey, well, I can reject God today. So I can kind of have my fun. And then maybe 10 years from now or when I'm old or something, you know, then then I'll then I'll try to receive God. But that's a dangerous game to play because what you're actually saying there is you see life with God as something boring or an obstacle to be postponed and delayed rather than the place where true life is found, you know? And if you're saying that, like it it speaks implicitly to the fact that you want these other things more than God. And there's the, that that's, that's scary ground to be mm-hmm. walking on and giving yourself more and more. If you think of like an addiction, it's like, it's not like the more you, the more heroin you take, You'll eventually get tired of it and want out. It's like no, the more you, more heroin you take, the more heroin you want. You know, yeah. like, and I think similarly, the more we feed into a heart whose loves and desires are set against God, the more we want our distance and our autonomy, and yeah. the more we're hardened and the glory of the gospel. God is sovereign; He will be exalted in the midst of and over and through all that. You know, but
1: when we get this right, like we get this. I think some people will say, I've heard things, uh, even people that uh, maybe a gripe against Christianity, the idea of of this relationship with God is like, well, if he's God, like, why does he need me to love him, to pursue him? But we get this. I mean, if you have a significant other, if you have children, if you have parents, if you have friends, it's the exact same idea. Like, you are not going to foster a relationship with another person if you are putting yourself above them. It's not going to be a healthy relationship, at least. And it's the same sort of idea, but it's with the almighty creator of the universe here. So this is not a foreign idea of us. Um, You know, we could harden our hearts towards a spouse and you would have a similar result. Uh, It would, at the very least, make your marriage very hard. You could harden your heart towards your kids or your kids could harden hearts towards parents or towards friends, between friends. It's not going to be great for that relationship. And this is on even like a more cosmic scale because this is our creator. Totally. Um, so it's not like a foreign thing for us, I don't think, when we think about it in terms of just how God made us relationally. Yeah. And so I think it's helpful to to hear that as a warning. Um, yeah. And then even thinking about like, this isn't just with God, how that sort of thing could be cold. A relationship turns cold in the same way.
2: Yes. And when we even think of who God is. The God revealed in Christ, like this, isn't a God who's hanging out back, you know, despondent, waiting for us to go find Him. You guys just together. One of the ways I put it in the past is like, our problem is not that we're reaching for God while He refuses to be found, is rather God's reaching for us while we're clutching our idols. You know, like it's not. uh, I don't think hardening our heart is so much about God's out there waiting and I didn't get enough gumption up to go out and find Him. You know, I think the question is more like dude god is god has come for us in christ he's come to reconcile and redeem he's come to establish his kingdom and the question is you know dude are we willing to let go of these other things we've given ourselves to in order to make him first in our life
1: well uh I think those are really good things to chew on, and, uh, and I actually appreciate that you kind of put on your, your uh, teacher Josh hat on, <laughs> on here. Um, I learned a lot as well, and it was really good framework on thinking through this idea of hardening of hearts, specifically pharaohs, and um, just some, some deeper context to think through, chew through. Hopefully, this gives more communication or not more uh, conversation opportunities in uh, your community. Uh, whether it's Redemption Community or not. But uh, yeah, that was really good. Thanks for being on today, Josh.
3: Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Tempe podcast. We believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Redemption is one church in nine local congregations across the state of Arizona. Our vision at Redemption Tempe is to create disciples of Jesus who seek the reconciliation and restoration of Tempe. We would love for you to join us at one of our Sunday services at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 6 p.m. each week. You can learn more about us and how to get plugged into the life of our church by downloading our phone app called Redemption Church Tempe or on our website at Tempe.RedemptionAZ.com. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please send any questions or feedback you might have about this podcast or our church by emailing Tempe at RedemptionAZ.com. Thank you for listening. and We'll catch you next week.